Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I'm your host. How's everybody doing out there? I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. I'm fine. Thank you for asking. So, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it's about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So, why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It? Okay, so did you guys get to see the interview with Oprah and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex? Now, I did watch because, of course, like some of you out there, I was interested in listening to them talk about their experience with the royal family and the British press. Having heard some tidbits here and there from Prince Harry, I wanted to hear what Meghan had to say. Now, first of all, Village, are you aware of the fact that Meghan Markle, her son Archie, and their little baby girl that's on the way are not the first persons of color within the royal family? Well, if you didn't know, then let me talk to you about Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg Strelitz. Now, she was the queen consort of King George III from their marriage in 1761 until her death in 1818. The word consort, it means that she was the female ruler of an independent state, especially one who inherits the position by right of birth. So what am I saying? Well, that means beautiful people that she did not just marry into the royal family, she already was royalty. Now she and King George III, they had 15 children together. Yes, you heard me, 15, 13 of which made it to adulthood. Unfortunately, two of their sons died after having smallpox. Now she is, she was the grandmother of Queen Victoria. And she is the great, 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 great grandmother of the current queen, Elizabeth II. Now, fun fact, in Bridgerton, you know, the show that's on Netflix, uh, I, I heard all this like, you know, um, hype about the show. I had to check it out. But in that show, Charlotte, played by actress Golda Rochevel, is often shown demanding snuff from her foot servants. Now, for those of you who don't know, snuff, which by the way, I have seen it in real life because my great-grandmother, you know, partook of it, because that's the way I should say it. But snuff is a form of dried ground tobacco. 
and Queen Charlotte was believed to have been addicted to it. So now I have to tell you, when I was watching the show, guys, like I said, I simply just started watching, you know, to check it out, to see what all the hype was about. So I was really sort of like fixated on the premise of the show. <clears throat> And I wasn't really paying attention the way that I should have been. So now I'm going to have to go back and watch with new eyes because I did not realize that the queen portrayed in this series was the very same Queen Charlotte. So as I did my research for this episode, it is said that King George III, her husband, suffered from mental and physical illnesses. And he had many bouts of mental illness that made it difficult for the queen or their children to be around him. And he, in fact, lived in a separate residence from them. It was during these bouts that he would demonstrate fits of rage. And after 1812, the queen could no longer bring herself to visit him alone. Now, in one episode of the show that I'm recalling now as I'm, you know, doing all this research, the queen goes to visit the king, right? And as I'm watching the episode, I remember thinking, oh, okay, so there is a king. Duh, still not making the connection, right? Well, as she sits down to visit with the king, uh, he's eating his supper and things are going pretty well until he inquires about Princess Amelia, who was said to be the favorite of all of his children. Now, when the queen reminded him that she had died, history states that basically this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And the king never regained mental stability for the remainder of his life. You see, Princess Amelia had died two years earlier at the age of 27 from tuberculosis. So there were members of the royal family that were multiracial way before Meghan Markle, Archie, and anyone else. But the fact that we are just learning about this within the last few years says a lot we can see when it comes to the question of race there are still challenges that are faced as a result of it, allegedly, even among the royals. But I do have to say that I was shocked, Village, to realize that Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, who grew up here in America, did not realize as she married into the royal family that racism or racist views or behaviors are not just indigenous to the United States. I would have thought, if anything, she might have gone in with some walls built up as a result of it. But no, this problem is a global pandemic that has existed for centuries. And while there has been a lot of fallout because of this interview, I know that it took a lot of courage for her to speak her truth, not only about race, but about how it impacted her mental health. At the end of the day, we must do all that we can to protect our peace. And with the decisions that were made by the Duke and Duchess, that is just what they are striving to do. So 
I wish them the best of luck and many blessings to them and to their growing family. Now, in the month of March, there is yet another milestone for us to talk about. This week is National Sleep Awareness Week. It was launched by the National Sleep Foundation in 1988 as a way to bring awareness to the public about the importance of sleep health and how making sleep a priority contributes to your overall health. This campaign usually begins during the week when we turn our clocks ahead, as we did this past weekend for daylight savings time, right? And usually that means we're going to lose an hour of sleep. This time of year can act as a reminder for us to make some beneficial changes in our sleep routines in order to improve our sleep health. Why is sleeping so important? Well, did you know that sleep plays an important role in your physical health? It heals and it takes care of any risk of heart disease, kidney disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke. Whoa, I didn't know that. And so if it helps us with our physical health, then let's take a look at how it also can help us with our mental health. Sleep helps to support brain function and emotional well-being. Like all other animals, humans need sleep to refresh our minds, recover from the challenges of the waking day. But almost everyone at one point or another has problems sleeping or feels like they're not sleeping well enough. When we sleep well, we will feel invigorated, you know, like ready to face the world. We feel that we have the mental capacity to deal with the day, right? Now, when you don't sleep properly, you find that you'll have a problem solving, you know, difficult tasks, you begin to feel low, and your emotions become unstable. And if that continues for too long, it can lead to mood disorders such as depression and anxiety. Now, the interesting thing about lack of sleep causing depression is that one of the symptoms of depression is lack of sleep. Or if you go to the other end of the spectrum, it can be too much sleep. So insomnia is definitely something that everyone may experience at one time or another, and it can have extenuating circumstances if it goes on for too long. Now, there are some mindfulness techniques that we can use to possibly help improve sleep. Here it goes. Prepare for sleep before you go to bed by dimming the lights. So in other words, you're going to set the mood and you're going to unwind, relax, right? Avoid looking at anything with the screen. That means your, your cell phone, your tablet, laptop, or your TV immediately before sleep. You know, don't go watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
before you're about to go to sleep, that's probably not going to be a good idea for you. You know, when you go to bed, bring your attention to the present moment. Let your attention rest on your breath. Maybe imagine you're blowing it, you know, your breath far away. So like, in other words, make a conscious effort of breathing in and breathing out, right? That could be a way to relax you. You want to pay attention to how your body feels when you're breathing. You know, imagine yourself sinking into the mattress, relaxing each and every part of your body in turn. And if thoughts come, imagine they're like clouds, kind of sort of like passing through the sky. Let them pass over you. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in thoughts of what happened that day and the argument you got into earlier, right? Have some compassion for your thoughts. Put them where they need to be, okay? And no matter how troubling they are, remember that they're just thoughts. Right now, this is the time for you to allow yourself to rest. Now, the long-term effects of sleep deprivation can be serious, Village. So if you are having difficulties with sleep, it's important to find a solution that works for you. Mindfulness can help, but be sure to speak to your doctor and consider therapy if the issue persists. Sweet dreams, everyone. Now, also, the month of March is Women's History Month. And as I've mentioned in the previous weeks, I'm honoring all women who are creative. So I could be a writer, poet, actress, singer, etc. Right? So in today's episode, I would like to honor Regina Renee King. Yes, our sister was born on January 15, 1971 in Los Angeles, California. Now we know that she is an actress and a director who was known for her depth and versatility, earning acclaim for both comedic and dramatic roles. Now King's father was an electrician and her mother a special education teacher. They divorced when she was a child. While still young, King took acting classes for which she exhibited a pronounced aptitude. And at the age of 14, she was cast as the teenage daughter of main character in the sitcom 220, excuse me, 227. Did I just say 227? 227 with Marley Gibbs. <laughs> From there, she appeared in the movies Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, and Higher Learning, all of which were directed by John Singleton. Rest in peace, King. They were followed up with the comedy Friday, which, by the way, I just actually watched that whole trilogy. I believe it is. It's three movies, right? I just watched it for the first time 
um, all of them, I should say, for the first time this past weekend. Oh, my goodness. Friday, I'd always seen, but I had not seen um, the two movies that followed me. So I just watched it. Anyway, King's performance as the wife of football player um, Cuba Gooding Jr. in the popular movie Jerry Maguire brought her additional notice and led to more prominent roles in movies like How Stella Got Her Groove Back and Enemy of the State, among others. Now, after starring with Chris Rock in Down to Earth, King was cast in the short-lived sitcom Leap of Faith in 2002. She then returned to movies and she appeared in comedies like Legally Blonde 2 and Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous. She won praise for her role as backup singer and lover of Ray Charles in the biopic Ray in 2004. King played a character in season six um, of the TV series 24 before she was cast in the police drama Southland ran from 2009 to 2013 and she had a reoccurring role in Shameless in 2014, The Leftovers in 2015 and then again in 2017. In the anthology series American Crime, she portrayed a different character in each story arc and for her work on the show she earned two Emmy Awards, her first in 2015 and the second in 2016. Now, she won a third Emmy for her performance as a grieving mother in the miniseries Seven Seconds, which was about an African-American boy who was accidentally run over by a white policeman who then tries to cover up the incident. Shocker. Now, King was breathtaking and masterful in the role of Tish's mother in Barry Jenkins' film, If Beale Street Could Talk which by the way, I still have not seen. And I'm upset about it. <laughs> but that movie was adapted from the 1974 novel by James Baldwin. For her performance, she earned an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Now in 2019, she starred in the TV miniseries Watchmen for which she won a fourth Emmy. She has worked behind the camera and she's directed the TV movie, Let the Church Say Amen. That was a good movie. She helmed episodes of numerous TV series over the next few years, and she made her critically praised feature film debut as a director with One Night in Miami in 2020. Now, come to find out in the recent announcement about the Oscars, um, she was snubbed as director you know, for the in the best director category, she was snubbed. She was totally left out. Uh, they um, honored or they nominated Kemp Powers, who you know did the um, the the adaptation of the screenplay. <clears throat> he did receive a nomination, um, and he thought that you know she was robbed as well. He thought, in his opinion, she's the best director that he's ever worked with. Um, but you know, needless to say, this is what uh, happens with the Oscars and why there have been so many that have been disenfranchised with them because they don't represent, you know, diversity when it comes to the nominations. And, you know, as mentioned before, she has directed several television shows. A lot of them have been some of my favorites, like Being Mary Jane, Greenleaf, 
insecure as well as scandal and this is us and if you have not ever seen this is us i don't know what y'all are watching i really don't that show is thebomb.com anyway we see you queen so continue to slay and shine bright like the diamond you are Well, all right then, beautiful people. It's time for me to take that walk to my musical jukebox. Now this singer once said, quote, I was watching people, being from a community of people who were struggling. So everyone was really just one, working hard, or two, hoping that things would get better, unquote. This song, she said, was just about a couple and how they were trying to make a life together and face their challenges. She performed this song at Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday tribute in 1988. And in 1989, she won a Grammy for best pop vocal performance by a female. This is Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Ticket to anywhere, maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. Starting from zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something. Me, myself, I got nothing to prove. You got a fast car. I got a plan to get us out of here Been working at the convenience store Managed to save just a little bit of money Won't have to drive too far Just across the border and into the city You and I can both get jobs And finally see what it means to be living See, my old man's got a problem yeah, but the bottle, that's the way it is He says his body's too old for working His body's too young to look like his My mama went off and left him She wanted more from life than he could give I said, somebody's got to take care of him So I quit school and that's what I did You got a fast car Is it fast enough so we can fly away? You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way So I remember when we were driving Driving in your car Speed so fast it felt like I was drunk City lights day out before us And your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged Someone, be someone. You 
got a fast car We go cruise and entertain ourselves Still ain't got a job Now work in the market as a checkout girl I know things will get better You'll find work and I'll get promoted We'll move out of the shelter Buy a bigger house and live in the suburbs I remember when we were driving, driving in your car Speed so fast, it felt like I was drunk City lights lay out before us And your arm felt nice, wrapped around my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged I, I had a feeling I could be someone Be someone, be someone You got a fast car I got a job that pays all our bills Instead of drinking late at the bar Some more your friends than you do your kids I'd always hope for better Thought maybe together you and me find it I got no plans, I ain't going nowhere so Take your fast car and keep on driving so I remember when we were driving Driving in your car so fast, I felt like I was drunk City lights lay out before And your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder And I, I had a feeling that I belonged I, I had a feeling I could be someone Be someone, be someone You got a fast car Fast enough so you can fly away You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way Okay, kings and queens. So let's get into today's topic, which is women and police brutality. Women and police brutality, female victims of police brutality, right? Okay. Now, first, allow me to define what police brutality is. Police brutality is the excessive and unwarranted use of force by law enforcement. It is an extreme form of police misconduct or violence and is a civil rights violation. It also refers to a situation where officers exercise undue or excessive force against a person. Police violence includes, but is not limited to, physical or verbal harassment, physical or mental injury, property damage, inaction of police officers, and in some cases, death. While many of the most heavily, heavily covered stories of police violence involve Black male victims, Black women also have been longstanding victims of police violence and they should also be centered in the fight against racism. 
Now, Vice President Kamala Harris, who, when she was a senator representing the state of California, she was the only Black woman, woman in the Senate. And at that time, she tweeted, quote, we cannot forget about Black women in our quest for justice, unquote. She also tapped into activism against gendered police brutality by tweeting hashtag say her name. This hashtag was launched by the African-American Policy Forum in 2015 as a way to commemorate the black women and girls killed at the hands of white law enforcement. The movement against gendered police brutality has a much longer history though. It goes way back. And a critical early effort demonstrates why we cannot lose sight of the particular threat of police violence against black women. Now, almost a century ago, racialized police brutality in Washington, D.C. was surging. It included the shootings of 40 black men between the, the late 1920s and the 1930s, as well as white officers subjecting at least 29 black women and girls ranging in age from 15 to 68 to harassment, abuse, and physical violence. Now you might say, oh, well, that's just 29 black women. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm just talking about Washington, DC. We don't have that kind of time for me to talk about everybody. Officers harassed teenage girls and mentally ill women. And in several cases, the same officers who attacked black men, they barged into black women's homes police them on the street, punched them in the face, knocked out their teeth, and hurled racial epithets at them. Now, to give you an example, in 1936, sisters Martha and Ruth Lloyd, who were both students at Dunbar High School, they were exiting a bus at the corner of Tennessee Avenue and 14th Street Northeast. Now, the sisters noticed that a riot was unfolding on the street and tried to escape the violence. But Officer John Sorolla, dressed in plain clothes, grabbed Martha Lloyd and pinned her to the ground. Both sisters were arrested, and in the car, Sorolla beat Martha Lloyd with his black jack because she sassed him. The uptick in police brutality in the 20s and 30s can be traced to many factors. White police officers instinctively associated black women with criminality, arresting them at much higher rates than white women for disorderly conduct, intoxication, enticing prostitution, and during prohibition, bootlegging. Now, the Great Depression, ladies and gentlemen, was a period of time that plunged African-Americans even deeper into poverty that they were already experiencing, right? Some black residents of DC, of the DC area, in order to put food on the table, they resorted to petty theft. While others staged militant mass marches, both activities put white police officers on alert. And this context created more face-to-face -face interactions between white officers and black women. 
and these encounters sometimes became violent. The economic crisis also threatened white men's dominance in their mind. And some white police officers seemed to relish the opportunity to assert racial and sexual dominance over Black women. Barging into a Black woman's home while she was asleep and alone, running a gun across her stomach, and beating her was a display of power. Because of sexist assumptions, it was an exercise of power not only over Black women themselves, but over the men in their lives who could not protect them. And ladies and gentlemen, that goes back to slavery, okay? Now, these police officers never had to worry about facing any consequences for their actions, their racist behavior, or anything else, because they were protected by the white power structure. Sound familiar? But scrutiny of Washington's violence program didn't deliver justice. Instead, Representative F. Edward Hubay, which was uh, um, from, he was from Louisiana, but he sat on the committee uh, on the District of Columbia. He openly endorsed police violence in the nation's capital as a way to prevent Black criminality. It was the white residents, ironically, who were convinced that the city's police chief, police chief Ernest W. Brown, he was ineffective and therefore he stepped down. Now his replacement, Edward J. Kelly, had been present at brutality marches. And once he took office, local chapters of the NAACP and the National Negro Congress pushed him to use his power wisely. He said, and I quote, law-abiding colored citizens must be made to know that policemen are the hired protectors of them, unquote. The letter read, quote, and not their law-protected lynchers, unquote. Now, Kelly, he was somebody who listened. He sympathized. So like one month after he took office, he pledged reform at the Metropolitan Baptist Church where there were 1600 black residents of Washington DC in attendance. He tripled the number of black police officers including three black police women and he extended the hours of police court. The municipal and police courts merged making Armand W. Scott the very first black judge to preside over police court. Now, these reforms, they did actually work. And the number of cases of police brutality diminished dramatically. The rise in black officers created fewer face-to-face -face encounters between black women and white officers. While the addition of a black judge in police court enabled black residents of Washington to experience less bias in the judicial system. You know, what's interesting about that is <clears throat> we hear a lot of times, and of course this was the case with George Floyd last year, right? With all the demonstrations around the world, it was that it was more than just African-Americans that were protesting, right? That are looking for justice, that are, you know, voicing their, you know, dismay in racial inequity, right? 
it was it's white people and we've been saying for the longest time that white people need to be the ones to stand up and stand against systemic racism in order for real change to occur and so here's somewhat of an example of that very thing happening okay however these improvements they did not end gendered police brutality Many white police officers continue to associate black women with criminality and continue to over-police them. As of 2017, black women were twice as likely to serve time in prison as white women, according to the sentencing project. Time in prisons and jails poses a risk for black women. In 2015, a state trooper arrested Sandra Bland for failing to signal a lane change. And three days later, she was dead in her jail cell. Cases of police rape and sexual assault are an ongoing problem. Even today, the ACLU reports that in 35 states, police officers can use consent as a defense against sexual assault of arrestees while in custody. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Well, let me go ahead and give you an example, Village. On the night of September 15, 2017, Edward Martins and Richard Hall, both narcotics detectives with NYPD, pulled over an 18-year-old woman and her two male friends for being in a park after dark. After they found marijuana in the car's cup holder, they handcuffed the woman and told her friends to leave. The woman says that the detectives then put her in their unmarked police van with tinted windows and raped her as she cried and repeatedly told them no. Now semen was collected in a forensic evidence kit and guess what? The DNA matched both officers. In November of the same year, these two officers resigned from the NYPD and they currently face rape and kidnapping charges, but both have pleaded not guilty. Their defense against these allegations <laughs> is almost as disturbing as the crimes they're being accused of. They claim, listen very carefully, that they had consensual sex with the woman while she was in their custody. What you talking about, Willis? Consensual, how? Here's the thing though, this defense, ladies and gentlemen, might actually work because New York is one of those 35 states where consent may be used as a defense when a police officer is charged with raping a, pers a person in his custody. A BuzzFeed analysis of a Buffalo News database found that 26 out of at least 150 law enforcement officers charged since 2006 with sexual assault, sexual battery, or unlawful sexual contact with a person in custody have been acquitted or the charges have been dropped against them based on this outlandish defense. 
the defense completely ignores the incredible power police officers have over civilians in general, particularly those who are in their custody. The power dynamic makes consent impossible in this circumstance. Anyone in police custody implicitly understands this and knows that not going along with the police officer's wishes could have serious adverse consequences. Yeah, like death. I mean, police officers can pretty much say anything. I feared for my life is their favorite. And as a result, people could end up dead. Now, what are you gonna do in a situation? You're gonna fight against them so that they really can have a reason? Like they know what they're doing. So what an insult it is, and that's just putting it mildly, to know that they can say that the victim consented. This kind of sexual abuse by police is not uncommon. A Buffalo News analysis found that an officer is accused of sexual misconduct every five days. Another study discovered that 40% of young women in New York City reported being sexually harassed by police. Oh my goodness. Now, let us not forget, as we recently commemorated the killing of Breonna Taylor, who was a 26-year-old EMT who was killed by police in Louisville, Kentucky last year, while they were executing a no-knock warrant that her case only gained attention after the killing by former police officer Derek Chauvin of George Floyd. It was only after George Floyd was killed in May. She was killed in March. George Floyd was killed in May. And then the killing of Breonna Taylor gained national attention. And even though police brutality and police-involved shootings of countless unarmed Black people have gained national attention, Black women victims are sometimes lost in the sea of Black men who are killed. The last time something as reckless as what happened to Breonna Taylor happened was a police killing of a Black woman back in October of 2019 when an officer with the Fort Worth, Fort Worth Police Department shot 28-year-old Atatiana Jefferson in her own home. An officer responded to her home because a concerned neighbor requested a wellness check. Now, let me just stop right there because I remember this story and I remember thinking to myself, this neighbor, according to records, um, you know, called 911 because it was late at night and he noticed that his neighbor's front door was ajar. Now, him being a man himself, he didn't feel the need to go over to make sure that his neighbor was okay. I mean, I'm not sure if he had her number or anything, but maybe he could have called. I mean, I know it's late at night, but if you're concerned, you know, maybe she didn't even realize the door was open. No, no, no. But he called 911. It's supposed to be a wellness check, people. A wellness check means somebody is concerned. They, they haven't heard from you or they see something, you know, maybe out of order that could be going on that might be harmful to you. And so in good faith, they call the police 
and say, hey, can you just go check on my friend, my family member, my neighbor, just to make sure that they're okay, okay? That, that's what the wellness check is supposed to be. Now, if that's what the wellness check is supposed to be, why is it that when the police responded, the police officer in the back of her home shot his gun through her bedroom window and killed her while she and her eight-year-old nephew were playing video games. Actually, she got up because she heard disturbance in the background in, in the um in the backyard. So she got up, leaving her nephew in the living room, and she went into her room and she was looking to see what was happening. And in that moment is when her life was taken, right? So body cam footage showed Jefferson was shot within four seconds of the police officer arriving. What check did they do? What did they do? They just killed an innocent black woman. If you're supposed to be checking on her, how do you end up killing her? Oh no. Well, how about the shooting death of Pamela Turner? a 45-year-old grandmother who was mentally ill and at the time was suffering from a manic episode. Police were attempting to arrest her for outstanding warrants. Now, somebody out there might say, well, you know, I mean, she did after all have outstanding warrants, right? Well, that would be a big fat no. Because guess what? Those outstanding warrants never even existed. It has been proven time and time again that Black people are more likely to be victims of police violence, even when they are unarmed. And even when they're armed and say they're armed, it doesn't matter which way you turn it. There is always a reason why police escalate the situation and react violently to us. And just as we become outraged by the deaths of black men and boys at the hands of police, we must not forget that black women and girls have also lost their lives in police shootings. Hashtag say her name. Make sure we do more to bring attention to the too many black women and girls who probably would still be here if their skin color was different. Now I'm gonna ask you to bear with me, Village, as I hashtag say her name. Atatiana Jefferson, Amala Turner, Corinne Gaines, Yvette Smith, Miriam Carey, Shelley Frey, Darnisha Harris, Melissa Williams, Chantel Davis, Rekia Boyd, Ayana Stanley Jones, Tarika Wilson, Catherine Johnston, Kendra James, Taisha Miller, Sandra Bland, Brianna Taylor. Now these are just 
some of the names of women who have died at the hands of police. May we never forget all the victims of police brutality. And let us look to a day where police are held by the same standards as all other citizens in our society, for they are to uphold the law, but they are not, nor should they ever be placed above the law. Well, kings and queens, we have come to our last song for the evening. Now, this song was this musical family's first big hit. It peaked at number two on the R&B chart in August of 1982. It crossed over to the pop chart, making their album, All This Love, Go Gold. It has become a popular sampled track in both R&B and hip hop music since its release. This song was even dubbed a Motown classic. It's I Like It by DeBarge.
Okay, Village, it is that time again for our inspirational story. Now, this week's story is called Sweet Dreams. So a young boy and girl were enjoying a pleasant afternoon playing outside in their neighborhood together. The boy showed the girl his collection of beautiful, unique marbles. In turn, the girl showed the boy the handful of candy that she had just gotten for her birthday. The boy proposed that the two of them switch. He would give her all of his marbles if she handed over all of her candy. The girl agreed, as she found the marbles to be beautiful as well. The boy handed over all his marbles, but kept one, the most exquisite one of them all, in his pocket. The girl kept her promise, though, and she gave the boy all of her candy. That night, the girl was happy with the exchange and peacefully went to sleep. The boy, however, couldn't sleep as he was wondering if the girl had secretly kept some of her candy just like he did with the marble. Hmm. Now, what's the, mo- what's the moral of this story? <clears throat> well, if you don't give 100% in your relationships, you will always assume your partner isn't giving 100% either. If you want your relationships to be built on trust, you have to be a participating factor in that. You know, I think about that right there, and I've always recognized that relationships are a two-way street, that everybody in the relationship matters, everybody's feelings matter, their thoughts matter, their experiences matter. No one person is more important than the other. And when it comes to maintaining that relationship, we have to do all that we can in our own right to make sure that that relationship is nurtured, you know, kind of like a garden. You have to plant those seeds of trust and honesty and faith and all of those things if that's what you want to be produced within your relationship. We cannot sit back and put the responsibility of a relationship that you claim to be important to you on the other person and make it their total responsibility to take care of the relationship. That's not how it works. And quite frankly, that relationship is not going to be sustainable if only one person is making all the effort. Honesty, it grows your character. So by being honest in your relationships, you're holding your partner accountable to do the same. It allows both you and your partner to continuously think about your choices and how you can help or hurt your partner and your relationship. Well, kings and queens, we've come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. And remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. 
and I look forward to being with you all again next week. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram and Facebook at villagementality.bkm as in Mary. And just remember, God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days.